Uh, well, we're going to ask the question that is up on the screen there, what is the gospel? Um, various things will be coming up on the screen. If you like to take notes or if you like to follow where we're going, I've also um, had this uh, handout produced for us and um, you'll find that as well uh, helpful, I think, as we go through. As we look over this week and last week, uh, looking at how we can uh, better tell others about the Lord Jesus. Uh, last week we thought about what it means to be a witness. This week, uh, what is the gospel? As a lad, I, I loved lining up dozens of dominoes on the living room floor and then pushing the first one over and seeing how the others tumbled down afterwards. I don't know whether you did that when you were a little boy or a little girl or indeed if your children uh, do it today. It passed uh, hours for me uh, when um, the, the rain was falling and I couldn't get outside in the summer holidays. Now, as a boy with dominoes, it was great fun. But when it happens to the gospel, it is a disaster. Uh, Two friends of mine have lost parents in the last ten days. Uh, These two men have both died as a result of tumours in their bodies. Uh, But as my friends mourn them, they have the wonderful assurance that their loved ones were believers in Jesus Christ. One of my friends wrote this in an email of his father-in-law. Rodney now gloriously sees his saviour face to face. Those left behind rejoice through many tears. As I spoke to the other friend um, a week or so ago, uh, she said to me, this is where the gospel makes all the difference. Knowing that dad is now with the Lord makes this moment bearable. You see, the gospel really matters. And we see how it really matters in death. The gospel is the only way that men and women and boys and girls can be put right with the living God. And so is spend eternity with Jesus Christ beyond the grave. And so to change the gospel is a disaster. There is, you see, such a tight logic and flow of the argument in the gospel message that when we change one part or misunderstand or misrepresent one part, then the whole thing comes tumbling down like a pack of cards or, uh, to keep to my original illustration, like tumbling dominoes. Let me just illustrate that. At the heart of the gospel is the problem of sin. But if we don't understand sin properly, we will never understand God's wrath, God's anger. See, if if sin is misunderstood or, or presented as nothing more than naughty things that we do, then why is God so angry at us? Why would a loving God judge people who aren't really that bad and send them to eternal damnation? And so I find people asking me, maybe you have heard people ask you this question, maybe you ask this question yourself. How can a God of love send people to hell? When we ask that question, we have misunderstood how terrible sin really is. If we don't understand sin properly, we think we are basically good people, then God's judgment will seem harsh and unjust. See, misunderstand sin and the wrath of God comes tumbling down. And that is why so few churches these days preach judgment. uh, Because they have a a weak view of sin. Once I've lost any notion of God's judgment, the next thing to go is the cross, of course. Why did Jesus have to die if we're basically good people? Why did Jesus have to die if we are not facing God's anger? And so it is no surprise that the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross is under fire in the church right now. People don't believe these days that Jesus died for my sin. 
misunderstanding, sin and wrath comes tumbling down. When God's wrath is denied, we have no need for the cross. And once we've lost the importance of the cross, then the wonder of grace is knocked down. And that affects the way we live the Christian life. As you see, there is a tight gospel logic that means that once one aspect of the gospel falls, so the whole thing comes crashing down like dominoes. And so this morning I want to ask, what is the gospel? And we may have been Christians for many years and and may have even been coming to this church for many years, but I want to ask for humility among us this morning. And I want us to ask honestly to assess whether we understand the gospel as clearly as we should. Uh, Perhaps you're not a Christian. Maybe you've been coming for many years. Maybe this is the first time you've come. Welcome to you. It is great that you're here. I hope that this morning will help you to understand what is at the heart of the Christian faith and why Christians believe what we believe. Indeed, I hope that this morning um, knocks down some of the, uh, the misrepresentations of the Gospel. Let me start right back at the beginning then in this issue of sin. And I'm going to spend most of our time this morning thinking about what sin is because I think it's one of the most misunderstood areas of the Gospel and because if we misunderstand it, uh, the Gospel uh, is misunderstood as it goes on. The Bible tells us that we all have a problem and that problem is the problem of sin. Listen to the words of Romans chapter 3 verses 10 to 12. Now if you want to follow, there's going to be quite a lot of references. Uh, Please feel free to follow along in the Bible. I'll give you page numbers. But if you just want to listen in, uh, then I'll quite understand so that you don't feel you're flicking around all the time. Romans chapter 3 verse 10, page 1130. In Romans chapter 3 verse 9... Uh, Paul is concluding an argument from verses one and, uh, chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and he concludes with the statement all alike are under sin. It doesn't matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, everyone is a sinner. And then he writes, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, do you hear that? No one who does good. You might be saying at the moment, some people do good, don't they? Not in the way the Bible is going to describe it. No one who does good. No one who seeks God. See, the Bible says we have a problem. We've all sinned. But, of course, sin is is such a misunderstood word. Uh, Jim Packer, in his uh, excellent book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, writes this. The Gospel starts by teaching us that we as creatures are absolutely dependent on God and that he as creator has an absolute claim on us. Only when we've learned this can we see what sin is. We are creatures. We don't like thinking of ourselves as creatures, do we? Um, uh, As we were coming into church today, we saw a little snail. I said to... um, I said to Gareth, that's going to get stepped on. He said, I'll rescue it. What a kind man he was. He picked it up. I was going to let it get stepped on. Uh, We're creatures. We don't like little creatures. We are creatures created by God. We owe our very life to God. And not just the fact that we exist, but that we continue to live and breathe. Every breath we take comes from him. Every good thing we have comes from him. The food we eat, the friends we enjoy, the fun we have. It all comes from the hand of God. God created everything that is good. And although we owe God everything, we want to live independently of him. Because we are creatures, to ignore God is a terrible thing. 
To reject him actually is the ultimate crime in the universe. To rebel against God's rightful lordship of our lives is treason. There's a word we don't use very often these days. But treason is a terrible crime. That is sin. And all of us, says Romans chapter 3, are guilty of that. And it is a terrible, terrible crime. A sin is a crime against God. And so, if you remember nothing else, would you remember this? Sin is primarily a theological category. That is, sin is something that we do against God. Our misunderstanding of sin become, begins when we, when we put it into a different category. And these days, we recategorize sin into a psychological category or a moral category or a, a sociological category. Let me take that one first, the sociological category. What do I mean by that? Don't worry by the long words. It's all very, very straightforward. People will say something like this to me. They will say, I'm not a bad person. I've never done anybody any harm. Now, often I hear that when I um, take funerals. When I go and visit the, the widow of someone, um, the, uh, she will say to me something like this. She will say, look, uh, Bert wasn't religious. He didn't go to church. But he was a good man and he never did anybody any harm. Now you see, at that moment, we are thinking sociologically. If it doesn't hurt anyone, it can't be wrong. I've never done anybody any harm. Now look, if you think that way, then potentially pornography isn't wrong. It doesn't hurt anyone else. It doesn't hurt anyone for me to look at a bit of porn on the internet, does it? How can that be wrong? Uh, When I think in those terms, I can cheat on my tax return. That's not wrong because it doesn't really hurt anyone else. Well, not really with the sort of paltry sums that I'm talking about. That doesn't hurt anybody just to fiddle my tax return just a little bit, does it? See, it doesn't hurt anyone, it can't be sin. That is largely how people think these days. And that is to measure sin sociologically. Does it have any impact on anyone else? Uh, Turn with me to Psalm 51 if you're following uh, in the Bible and uh, you'll see uh, where this is simply uh, not the case. Page 573 uh, in the Bible. Page 573, Psalm 51 and verse 4. And we'll see how sin is primarily a theological issue. Psalm 51 verse 4. When I read this verse, will you think to yourself, is that really right? Psalm 51 verse 4. David writing, against you, talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, in its wider context, that is an astonishing statement. At the beginning of the psalm, you'll see this was a psalm written by King David, written after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, for years, when I would read verse 4, I'd think to myself, no, David, it wasn't against God only that you sinned. You sinned against Bathsheba, against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. You sinned against Bathsheba herself. You led her into something that was unhelpful for her. How can you say that you sinned against God only? For years I didn't understand this. And that is because I hadn't understood that sin was not a sociological category, but a theological category. Primarily, sin is against God. Now, the second wrong category we use uh, to measure sin is the moral category. When we put sin into a moral category, we think, I've not sinned unless I've broken moral laws. Now, don't get confused here. Of course, there is a sense in which if I break God's moral law, uh, I have sinned. Uh, But that's not the primary thing. That's what I'm saying. 
And the moral category I'm thinking here is not so much the Ten Commandments, but the morals that we, uh, we lay out for society. So someone, in, when we think in these terms, someone is a sinner when they've done something morally outrageous. In the current climate, bankers are sinners for their greed. And MPs and public figures are sinners for claiming unreasonable expenses. Now I think this is fascinating what's happening in, in Britain at the moment over this. Because when we measure sin this way, sin is determined by the setting of the moral compass. It depends who, who's deciding what is sin and what isn't. Now you see, when we look at um, the, the bankers and the MPs, we think their greed is terribly sinful. But that, that's, that's, only, that's very interesting how we've moved the moral compass because when, when we're talking about greed for ourselves, we don't think it's sinful at all, do we? I'm not a sin, sinner for wanting more and more and more. That's just bettering myself. In fact, people will be quite proud of the fact that they've got so much. Aren't they clever? See, greed. Who, who's deciding? The greed of the bankers is sin because the moral compass has been set by that. My greed, that's not sin at all. I'm not a sinner if I bend the rules on my expenses, but MPs are. Now, put, you see, if I put sin into a moral category, then society sets the moral compass and determines what is sin, usually by public opinion. Now, just think back a few decades. Fifty years ago in Britain, sex outside marriage was considered a sin. To live with someone before marriage was to, what do we used to say? Live in sin. We don't say that anymore. Because now, following the sexual revolution of the swinging 60s, the majority of Brits would not see anything wrong with sex between two consenting adults who are not married to anyone else. The moral compass has shifted, you see. Now, at this moment, I'm not even saying what the Bible says, whether that's wrong or right. I'm just saying, do you see how, when we view it from the moral position... Depending on where the moral compass is pointing depends on whether you think something is sin or not. Providing we're not hurting anyone, the sociological category, we've done nothing wrong. Providing society sees it as acceptable, the moral category, we're not sinners. Now do you see, when we no longer see sin as a primarily theological issue, we will accept things that the Bible will not accept. Now that happens in the church as well. Sin is a theological category primarily. So David said, against you, you only have I sinned. Not sociological, not moral and not psychological. Now this third category is the category of the psychiatrist's couch. I'm like I am because I was treated badly as a child. I only react the way I do because of things that happened to me in the past. When we put sin into a psychological category, I am a victim and not a rebel. It's not my fault. It's very easy then to excuse my actions. I act the way I do as a result of my past or my parents or my genes. Not my fault. Do you see how we've redefined sin? By forgetting that it's primarily theological against God. And when we do that, Rather conveniently, most of us are not really sinners. Not really. Because most of us don't hurt others. We don't break moral law. Not the big morals, not the ones that really matter. And anyway, I'm only acting the way I do because of my past. Do you see how we can excuse ourselves? When we think theologically, then we are all sinners. 
Let me try and explain, uh, just give you one example of how putting it in the theological changes the way I think about sin. Let's take lying as an example. According to the world, it is a sin to lie when you are Bernard Madoff because your lying affected others, the sociological category. Because cheating people out of life savings is morally wrong. Society has already said that. That's when lying is wrong, you see. But what about little white lies? They never did anybody any harm, did they? Of course, it's not a good habit to get into and you don't want your children to be little white liars. But let's not get too steamed up about them. Being a little white liar is hardly something I should be judged by God for, should it? Not going to hurt anyone else, not really. So why does the Bible consider lying so bad? Well, let's put it into the theological category and we'll see why. Lying is bad because the God who created us, the God who knows what is best for us, the God who gives us everything said, do not lie. And so when I lie, even if it doesn't affect anyone else, when I am lying, I am shaking my fist in the face of God and I am saying to him, I don't care what you say. I want to lie. I I do not uh, care that you have said do not lie. I want to make up the rules. I'll live my life my way. I'll do the Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. See, that's why lying is so bad. Regardless of the lie itself, it is wrong because it is an act of defiance. I'm shaking my face in the fist of God. I'm rebelling against him at that moment. I know you said don't lie. I don't care. I'm going to lie. Now that's why somebody said um, years ago that sin is not so much rule breaking but rule making. I'm going to make up the rules, not God. Now you see, until I understand sin like that as an offence against God, as rebellion against God, I'll never understand why God speaks of judgement as he does. And most of us uh, will think we're really quite nice. We're certainly not sinners. Uh, to sum this little section up, in 1983, the US uh, psychologist Carl Menninger wrote an interesting book with the title, Whatever Happened to Sin? In that book, he argued that the notion of evil has slid from being defined theologically, in other words, as an offence against God, to a crime defined legally, in other words, our effect on people and society, to now being uh, sickness defined only in, in psychological terms, in other words, what it does to me. Sin is sin when it hurts me. See the slip. In modern thinking, sin is no longer an offence against God. But again, remember what the Bible said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned in every area of life. Now before I move on from this, let me say there is one way that we can lessen our view of sin, even if we do believe in sin. We can lessen it, by ta- we can take the edge off it uh, by limiting it to safety zones. The preacher Pete Woodcock Uh, was the one that I first heard this from. Uh, He very helpfully identifies a number of safety zones that we put sin into. And when we drop sin into these safety zones, we don't have to take it so seriously anymore. So he says, there's the old-fashioned religious zone. So the Pet Shop Boys, do you remember that group? The Pet Shop Boys sung a few years ago, It's a Sin. Remember the song? This is how it goes. Everything I've ever done, everything I ever do, every place I've ever been, everywhere I'm going to, it's a sin. 
Now what they were doing was they were referring to their repressive Roman Catholic upbringing. For them, sin is something that cramps and confines you. Something was labelled sin to make you feel guilty about it. That's what they were singing about. So in the old-fashioned religious zone, we think of the the finger-wagging people, the moralizers, the Puritans, the old-fashioned Sunday school teachers and nuns who want to take all the fun out of life. And if we put it into that zone, you see, we can excuse it, can't we? And then there's the sexuality zone. The sexuality zone. Years ago it was seen in the seaside postcards. You know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, bit of hanky-panky. Something a bit naughty, but you didn't really talk about it. So as I said earlier, 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was shorthand for a couple living together before they were married, living in sin. Now if you keep sin to the sexuality zone, again, you can write it off as puritanical and outdated. I'm not really a sinner because I'm not doing that. And anyway, that's all outdated now, isn't it? Then there's another zone, the the lack of self-control zone. I I really couldn't help myself, but then no one's perfect, are they? I just didn't have self-control. It's the old advert for cream cakes, you know, naughty but nice. That's sin. I don't really take it seriously. And then there's the the light-hearted put-myself-down zone. So we hear people saying like this, this is amazing, they say, I got promoted for my sins. Joking about it. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? You got promoted for your sins. Now imagine a, a vicar saying that, I became a bishop for my sins. <laughs> Do you see, when we limit the sin word to these safety zones, we never have to take it really that seriously. And if we don't restrict sin to these safety zones... Um, If we'll understand it as a theological category, then we'll begin to grasp the gospel. Sin is rejection of God, the one who created us. Rebelling against him, the king of kings, is a terrible thing. But if I fail to see it that way, then God's wrath seems so harsh. Increasingly, I'm I'm finding that, that Christian people do not believe in hell. Certainly, unbelievers don't, but even Christian people don't believe in hell. So often in conversation people say to me, some of them committed Christian people say to me, I can't believe in a God who will send anyone to hell. Now let me tell you, when I think of the horrors of hell, I sometimes think to myself, is that really the destiny of ordinary men and women who are without Christ? I really do often think that. Is, is that really what's going to happen to people? When I think that way, I have forgotten two crucial things. The character of God and the seriousness of sin. When I, think, I, can't, when I can't believe in hell, you see, I, I've forgotten the character of God. That God is love. And he will always be angry at evil. And now, look, I think you and I know that if we start thinking about it properly. Uh, my children... Um, uh, the girls were, were nine uh, on Friday. Um, and, uh, of course, we've got Joshua, who's six. You know, I, I love my children, of course. If something happened, terrible happened to them, and um, uh, you and I know the sorts of terrible things that are happening to children these days. If something terrible happened to Susanna and Bethan and Joshua, or, or one of them, I would want the person that hurt them to be brought to justice. I really would. Indeed, if I didn't care that something bad had happened to them, I think you would call my love for my children into question, quite rightly. See, love demands justice, doesn't it? 
Now do you see, the antithesis of love is not justice, but indifference. If I just don't care that something bad happened to my children, then I don't love them. When I call for justice, it shows that I do love them. Love demands justice. Love is angry at evil. God is love, and so he must judge. He must do something about evil. Now look, again, instinctively, we know that. Just think of the questions people ask. This week we remembered the anniversary of the 7-7 bombings. I was living in London at the time, right in the heart of the West End. I remember well the chaos and the fear that reigned that day. In the days that followed, I can remember people saying to me, I can't believe in a God who doesn't care about the atrocities of 7-7 and 9-11. And I said to them, no, I can't believe in a God like that either, and neither does the Bible. The Bible doesn't believe in a God who turns a blind eye to evil. Do you see, we know instinctively that God must punish evil. A God of love will punish evil. God is rightly angry at evil. And that is why hell exists. Hell exists for evil. I find it abhorrent to find Christian people saying they believe in a God who doesn't send people to hell. Because that says you believe in a God who doesn't care when evil things happen. Now there's so many verses we could turn to but the one uh, that I found most useful in recent days is is Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. I put the reference on the handout. Um, If you want to turn to it, it's on page 995 in the Bible. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. Here is Jesus telling a parable and he's telling a parable about a king who of course is, um, is God And then he says, verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The reason hell exists is because evil must be punished. The character of God, God is love, demands that evil is punished. And God created hell for the devil and his angels And, of course, then, for anyone else who commits the crime of rebelling against God. When we say we can't believe that a loving God would send anyone to hell, we have forgotten the character of God, and we've forgotten, secondly, the seriousness of sin that we've just been thinking about. See, once I've moved sin from the theological category, then I don't think it's that bad. Once I've forgotten that it is rebelling against God then it doesn't seem so bad, does it? That's when we find it hard to believe in the wrath of God, when we have lost sight of God's character and we've lost sight of our sin. So do you see how how the dominoes fall over? You get sin wrong and and wrath falls over. Uh, You get get, uh, uh, wrath wrong and there's no need for the cross. Why did Jesus have to die if I am not that bad? What was the meaning of Jesus' cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Christians have always believed that Jesus was God forsaken so that we might not have to be. He was our substitute. He took the punishment for us. But if there is no wrath to face, because we're not that bad, what do we need rescue from? Here is the good news. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It is a rescue plan. Jesus was dying to rescue sinners from the wrath of God. 
But when I don't believe that sin is that bad and therefore that God is not angry, then I don't need the cross for salvation. And then the cross is reduced to being nothing more than an example to live by. An example that we should follow of of self-sacrifice. And it is no surprise that in churches up and down the land, that is the only way the cross is seen. So there is a big battle, theologically at the moment, over what was happening at John, when Jesus died on the cross. And lots of people in churches would say he was just dying as an example. Uh, here's a question uh, that you can measure yourself on, whether you understand the gospel or not. Uh, when we say something like this, what about the good Muslim? See, if you think that religion saves you, you've not understood the gospel. If you think that being a religious person or a good person can get you right with God, you've forgotten how bad sin is, you've forgotten what it is to face the wrath of God, and you certainly don't think that Jesus' death was necessary. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21 says this, if righteousness, that is being right with God, could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If in some way I can be right with God by my own efforts, Christ died for nothing. So if you ask what about the good Muslim, you've forgotten the gospel. Or don't believe the gospel in some way. And finally, when we don't understand the cross, well then we'll not be overwhelmed by, uh, by the love of Christ. We won't be amazed by grace. I was really saddened to learn that a large successful church in Britain had changed the words of the song Amazing Grace. They now sing these words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saves someone like me. Do you know how the original words go? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. They won't sing wretch, we're not wretches, I'm just a someone. Well then that's not grace, is it? If I'm not a wretch, but actually I'm quite a good person, certainly I'm only an ordinary person, then God's rescuing me is not amazing grace. Listen to amazing grace. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to amazing grace in these words. John chapter 3 verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God's love is amazing. That Jesus died for me even though I rebel against him every day. See, I can tell when people haven't understood the grace of God when they ask questions like this. If God will forgive anyone anything, then that means I just go and do whatever I like, doesn't it? If you think like that, or if you live like that, willfully sinning, because you believe you can be forgiven anyway, then you haven't understood how horrible your own sin is. You haven't understood how your sin offends God. It hasn't really hit you how much you've been rescued from God's wrath. You haven't understood God's grace. And sadly, in Britain today, I see many who are not amazed by grace. People who call themselves Christians, but who never live lives of utter thankfulness to the Lord. People who are not completely overwhelmed by God's love for them, Christians who know nothing of sacrifice or taking up our cross, abandoning everything to follow him, prepared to die for him, to lose my life for him, 
Christians who treat Jesus as, frankly, not much more than another hobby. As a friend of mine puts it, until you've understood the gospel as the best news you've ever heard, you really haven't understood the gospel at all. Well, let's turn to pray. And I'll uh, lead us in prayer. And then after I've uh, prayed one prayer, Anne McCormick will continue to lead us in our prayers of intercession. Let's pray together.